Good morning again. <clears throat> Sorry, there's always something in my throat lately. So we're going to get through it. It'll be fine. Um, if you've been in relationships throughout your life, and I guess you have because as people, that's what we do, then you've been hurt in relationships. Like you can't have a ton of relationship experience without experiencing some measure of hurt, whether it's little or a lot. And each time we're hurt, each time we're betrayed, each time things don't go the way we thought, it, it, it allows us to put up that one more protective layer. Right? I'm going to just keep my relationships a little safer next time. I'm going to just keep my, um, my heart a little less engaged in this friendship, a little less engaged in this dating relationship, a little less engaged with my spouse. I've been hurt, and I get it. Like you got plenty of evidence and plenty of reasons and every reason in the world to keep your relationships safe, to keep enough protective layers up over your heart so that you don't get hurt that deeply again. Or maybe to keep yourself from getting hurt at all. Every reason in the world, and I get it. I've gone through some of them. You see like there's gray here? I've been in a lot of relationships. I've been betrayed. I've been let down by people that I respected and cared about. I've had people turn away from me. Shockingly, I've had people talk bad about me before. I know that's hard to believe. It's happened, right? Um, Had people that were there like to help and support who ended up being like some of the greatest pains and, and struggles of our life. We've been there. Every reason in the world to keep your relationship safe. In fact, that's what they tell us as pastors to do. Like, you need to make sure you keep a good, safe distance because people can hurt you and betray you. Every reason in the world. But there's every reason in the Word and every reason for your spiritual life and health not to play it safe with your relationships. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, you can read our vision and mission statement on the, uh, on the bulletin. We're doing just a couple of weeks to kind of transition into the new year. Uh, just recasting our vision, recasting what, what matters, uh, recasting these essential keys if we're going to grow and have Christ formed in us. And so together we desire to see the glory of God enjoyed and spread from here to the ends of the earth. We want to make God so central and so big and so great and so glorious that you see him and that I see him and that our joy and our driving and our passion becomes to see and make him great, make him be seen as, as great as he is, right? And we, we do that by making multiplying disciples that healthy living things reproduce. We want you to reproduce, right? We want there to be more disciples because God has saved you and worked in you than there would have been had he not. And we believe multiplying disciples treasure Christ supremely. That's what we did last week. Jesus is central to everything. If you want to grow to be more like Jesus, you need Jesus. If you want to have Christ formed in your life, then it's about Jesus. If you want to help people, then you need to talk more about Jesus. And if you want to work harder, then it's going to require Jesus. All right? Treasure Christ supremely. Today we're going to be talking about relationships of growth and change. And so we want to drive you to relationships, real relationships. The beneath the surface, the under the hood, seeing all the jacked up stuff in the engine of your life kind of relationships. Because relationships are God's pri- one of God's primary tools for your growth 
primary tools to form Jesus in you. And so your marriage, it gets hard sometimes. Why? Because Jesus is driving parts of your, exposing parts of your heart out so that parts of your life and your heart can be redeemed. He wants to form Jesus in you. That's the goal of your marriage. You are sitting in a church with a bunch of sinners. A lot of them. In fact, universally so. Right? And the reason you're in a church, placed in a body, placed in a family, is because God uses relationships to help us grow. And yeah, you can shop for the best church. And yeah, you can think, does this have the programs I want? Does this have the music I like? Does this have the kind of people that, that look and act like me? And you can do that. And then, you know, you're going to find out. You're going to get into that church and you're going to be like, man, this isn't what I thought it was. These people aren't what I thought they were. They let me down. You know, that class did not even call me and I was sick. Every reason in the world, you just move on then. Except for there's this word that God uses over and over called perseverance. And perseverance is only formed by pressing through hard stuff instead of walking away when things are hard. Relationships are God's tool of sanctification. They're his tool of making you more like Jesus. But not just the big, you know, your marriage and church, but there should be a couple of brothers or a couple of sisters in your life with full access, with full knowledge of who you are. Because it's relationships that are God's primary tool of growth and change. So we're going to be doing that today. We're going to talk about the glory of God and multiplying discipleship next week. And then we'll be kicking off our our series for the next while in John. Um, And so I'm going to pray. We're going to do it a little differently today. i got a bunch of different verses, which I don't always do uh, or often do. But we're going to go through a bunch of verses that are the one another verses of the New Testament. 59 times in the New Testament, God commands us to one another. Love one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, build one another up, speak to one another, right? Um, And so 59 times he gives us, here's how to do life in community. Here's how to live the gospel out in relationships with other people. Here's how to do the beyond the surface, beneath the hood kind of relationships. One another, 59 times. I'm not going to go through all 59, Uh, but we'll get a sample of them. And so stay with me. We'll see how it works out. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. So, Father, help us to see Christ as central and beautiful and valuable and worthy. And then help us to see relationships as one of those primary ways to help us fall more in love with him, to become more like him, to experience more of him, to experience more of our need of him. Help us do that, Father. And I pray, God, that I wouldn't just be rambling off words, but God, that I would be speaking the words you have for your people. Not words that um, excite the mind, not words that, God, we can listen to for the next little while and move on, but God, words of power that land on our hearts and change us. And I can't do that, but you can. And so help us, Father. I plead with you, help us. Drive us to Jesus and then drive us to others. Drive us to transparency that we so desperately fear. Drive us to relationships that aren't safe and comfortable, God, that we may find Judas on the other side of them, but they're still worth it. Drive us to that, Father, because the abundant life of Jesus is found in rich relational lives with others. We need them. And so, Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
so as I look through the life of Jesus, and any time a pastor says, as I look through the life of Jesus, I see, like, let your ears go way up on alert and think, ah, he's probably making something up. Don't do that with me, but do that with other people. Um, when I look at the life of Jesus relationally, what I see is it seems like he operated relationally on three different circles. And so there was a crowd ministry, and there's always crowds around him, and he has several places throughout the Gospels where he gives this big sermon to crowds, like the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he spoke to the crowds. His disciples were there, but he spoke to the crowds. And so you see Jesus giving a portion of his life and a portion of his teaching to these large audiences. He fed the 5,000. He spoke to the 5,000. Right? But then you also see Jesus giving more access and more investment to 12 men called his disciples who become his apostles. And so he gives his life to 12 men and they follow him everywhere he goes. They eat where he eats. They sleep where he sleeps. They experience the miracles of Jesus that no one else saw, like the wedding in the Cana of Galilee where he turns water into wine. Like They knew that was a miracle that almost no one else knew. They got this special access to Jesus, to, to his life, to his teaching, to his example, to his miracles. They got this special investment of Jesus into their lives. But he didn't stop there. Even within the 12, there were three people that got more access. There were three of these men that got experiences with Jesus that no one else got. There are three men who got to see the unveiled glory of Jesus with their physical eyes in this thing we call the transfiguration. And so what Jesus did was he gave the crowds a portion of his life. He gave more and most of his life to 12 people, a group. And then he gave even more of his life to three. Now, that's kind of reverse of our mentality, isn't it? Because, like, we think the program, the event, the gathering, that should get everything. We should, we should put everything we have into making sure the gathering is great. We should put everything we have into big programs and big dinners and big game suppers and, and, and big programs. And we should just, everything about church should be big. And, yeah, you should go to Sunday school, and that's, that's good, too. But there's, like, no room and no emphasis for the three. And I think we have it exactly wrong. Yeah, I think our lives should look a lot relationally, should look a lot like Jesus' life. And so, yes, we should be part of gatherings that encourage us, that the word of Christ dwells richly and that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that there is this firing up of our life to walk out into a world that's hostile or walk out into a world that does not love the Jesus we love. And together there's this, this energizing and equipping to go do that. But we should give more of our life to a group or to a class or whatever name you want to call it, this Sunday school class, this 12 to 18 people. And we care for each other. And we reach out to each other. And we serve each other. And every week we sit around tables or however your class is set up, and, and the Word is right there in the middle of us, and we share lives and heart and Word together weekly. And we meet each other's needs. And we spend time together formally, and we spend time together informally, and our tables are filled up with this group. More investment, more access. But one of the reasons I think American Christianity is so anemic and so plateaued and so stalled out is that we are terrified of that last group. We are terrified of giving full access in our life to three other people or two other people. We are terrified to say, here is who I am. Here are the walls off. Here are the masks off. Come look inside. 
and see all that's there. By the way, theirs is as ugly as yours. Just go ahead and tell you up front. Theirs is as needy as yours. No one has it all together. No such thing, except for Jesus. And so we're talking about, like, like we want to drive you into, we call them microgroups or DNA groups. We want to drive you into these groups. And we want there to be two or three other people on this earth that know your story from birth to now. We want there to be two or three other people on this earth that know the sorrows of your heart and the challenges of your heart and the temptations of your heart. We want there to be two or three other people on this earth that know everything. And we want there to be two or three other people on this earth that as they look into the word for a word from God for themselves, they're also looking for the word and saying, give me a word for my my brothers and my sisters. Give me a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of conviction, a word of challenge. You see, because on Sunday morning, it's easy to hide pain for three hours. It is easy to hide your sorrow for the next, well, however long I keep you. It is easy to hide your sin and your temptation for the next couple of hours. It's easy to do. But when you weave your life together with another person, you don't get to hide anymore. And so we want you in relationships with other people. We want Jesus to be the center of those relationships. We want you to offer the hope of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the sin-killing power of Jesus to each other. And there will be huge parts of your growth and your formation in Christ that will always be absent if you don't have these relationships. Now, if in anything I just said you heard, I want you to study the Bible with two or three other people, you drastically miss the words I just said. I don't want you to sit and have another Bible study. You got Sunday school, you got Wednesday night, you got church, you got discipleship groups, you got, got all these things you're doing. You're studying the Bible, hopefully. But if you wrapped your life up and your heart up around the word with another person, that's what I'm asking. Because it's easy to keep it academic. That's safe. But it's not transforming. And I want you to be in relationships that are transforming. And I want to be in relationships that are transforming, which means they won't be academic. It means I want a word from God for me and a word from God for them. And I want Jesus to be talked about so much that he changes us. All right. That's the introduction. Here we go. Let's look at these kind of relationships. Relationships are essential to a flourishing faith. Relationships are essential to a flourishing faith. And so we start with love as a key mark of our relationships. Love one another. Relationships sacrificially aim at God's best for each other. Relationships sacrificially aim at God's best for each other. Now, there's a lot of fake love that runs around that we call love. Love is such an abused word, right? I love this shirt until I got like something right here. We'll have to see if it comes out, right? Love that car. Love whatever. But there's these fake things we call love. Like so many, and this is just the way it starts. It's just immaturity or the gospel hadn't fully from us. So many of our relationships are, I love you because you love me. You, you make me feel good and you love me. Like I love you for what you can do for me. I love you for how you love me. And so our love isn't selfless. Man, I love you. Our love is like, I'll just love how you make me feel. I love how you help me. I love how you're all about me. I love how you make me God. Right? Or we have these fake loves like they get more destructive than that, right? Because hopefully we grow out of those things. Right? We have these, these loves that like enablement or enablers. 
And so there's people with destructive habits or harmful habits or sinful habits in their relationships and enablers help them keep that pattern intact. They support and and, um, undergird these destructive patterns. And we fall into these enabling relationships where I exist to just help them function and keep their patterns. Or we have codependent relationships where there's this unhealthy, excessive emotional dependence on each other. Usually, again, with some destructive habits involved. They're not love. They don't look like the Bible's love. So what is love? I'm going to give you a definition that I've kind of compiled from several sources. So if it sounds good, it's not because I'm smart. It's because I've just read people that define it this way. Love is valuing someone so much that you would gladly sacrifice for their highest good without needing anything in return. So that you value, you prize, you treasure, you put a worth on someone so much that you gladly sacrifice for their highest good without needing anything in return. And so the value of love's value is not placed on me. How do I get what I want? Me, how do you make me feel? Me, what do you do for me? The value is put on the other person. And when we value someone like that, You don't even call it sacrifice, right? It's my joy to serve. It's my joy to help. It's my joy to be part of their life. And so it's a joyful sacrifice, which is no sacrifice at all. So it's a joyful sacrifice for their highest good. Now, I've got some things I think would good, and I want them. Love is not giving me what I want. And you probably, you know, my family, they have things they want. They have things they would define as their good. My loving them is not giving them ice cream for every meal, all meals long. I don't love my kids by saying, okay, no more vegetables. Let's don't do it anymore. Even though that'd be my preference too. Let's just be honest. That's not love. Love is going for their highest good, going for their best good, which would be God's defined good for them. And so true love drives for what God desires in a person's life, not what they desire and not what I desire. Right? And so it is selfless, not selfish. It puts a value on them, not a value on me. It works to cooperate with God for what God wants to do versus working for what I want. And so Jesus says, love one another. Value one another to the point that you with joy would serve and sacrifice for them. And you won't need a paycheck. You don't need to be paid back. You don't need to, I'll do this for you, and then you do this for me. Let's make sure it all equals out. That's not love. And this is the command of Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, 230 plus times love is used. It is not a rare word. It is not a rare idea. When it comes to the Scriptures, it's all over the place. Did you know the greatest of Christian virtues is faith, hope, and love? And the greatest of these is love. Man. All right, that's in the Bible. There's a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 that is all about love. And its central point is this. You can speak with the tongues of men and angels. You can give your life up. You can sacrifice. You can serve. you You can give your whole life away to people. But if you lack love, it's worthless. It's like a noisy, clanging symbol. That's the way he talks about love. Paul commends every church he commends. He commends them for their love for all the saints. Or he challenges them to have love for all the saints. All right, so this is, this is love. In fact, this is how Jesus defines, command, uh, defines obedience. If you love me, 
keep my commandments. This is how God defines his relationship to people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How did he love the world? By giving his son. And it's not that we loved him first, but he loved us and sent his son for us. Like, it's all over the place, this thing, this command called love. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple of verses, John 13, 34, and 5. I'm going to read them for you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Now listen, if you've tuned out for a while, listen. By this, your love, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he's like, here's a new commandment, and it's not new because we've always been told, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your, neighbor, or, love your neighbor as yourself. We've been told that. What's new about it is that the quality of love that Jesus is now placing on his disciples has such a quality about it that it takes the death, burial, and resurrection for this kind of love to happen. It is a gospel kind of love. And so the newness of the commandment is the quality of the love that is now demanded. You're to love the way Jesus loved and laid down his life for his friends. You're to love the way Jesus loved and went to a cross to rescue us while we were enemies. See, that's how God demonstrates his love. Not by putting it on worthy people, people that have done what they're supposed to to get it, people that have earned his love. This is how God shows the kind of love he's talking about. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this new commandment, this Jesus quality of love, and then look at what he says. Like, stop and think about this for a second. By this, all will know if you're my disciples, if you love one another. If somebody were to follow you around for the next month and observe the way you love people, and I'm not just talking about the people you like, I'm not just talking about the people in your group, I'm not just talking about the people in your family. If, if people were to walk around with you for a month and say, and just see how you loved other people, would it shout, I know Jesus Christ and I follow him with everything I am? Because that's what it's saying. The greatest apologetic for the gospel is if, if and how you love people. By this, all will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love people the way I love people. And so what does your love for other people? What does your love for the church? What does your love for your class? What does your love for the two or three people in your group? What does your love for the people different than you? What does your love for those who are, are, are not in the same stage of life as you? What does your love say about Jesus. Does my love shout, I know and follow Jesus. I am loved by Jesus because that's the command. Love people the way I love you because that's going to prove, that's going to show off that you know me. Romans twelve ten. love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Brotherly affection. Like, you know how you take care, you, you know, you, you hate your brother or your sister, and you love them. Like, I can talk bad about them, but you can't talk bad about them, right? Everybody know that's kind of the rule, right? Love one another with brotherly affection. Take care, the way you take care of your family, the way you love your family, the way you serve your family. That's the way I want you to take care of the family of God. That's the way I want you to serve the family of God. That's the way I want you to love the family of God, with brotherly affection. And then look at this. going to war against every fiber of your being outdo one another in showing 
honor. I put weight on other people. I put dignity on other people. I put respect on other people more than on myself. And so can I outdo you and can you outdo me in putting dignity and respect and honor on each other? That's love. One more verse, Ephesians 4.32 gives us some qualities of this love. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Active goodness. Are you kind to people? Actively good. And then look at this, tenderhearted. Okay, here's Chris in his flash, and here's Chris when he's grumpy. My kids do something really dumb, and they get hurt. Just pick a kid, pick a day. Sorry, they're in the room. Well, you chose to jump off the couch, and so, of course, your ankle hurts. Deal with it, right? You said something dumb, and so they punched you in the arm. Deal with it, right? Is that tender-hearted? Or is that hard-hearted? And so am I tender-hearted to the struggles of my kids and my family and of you? Am I tender-hearted to how you're hurting? Am I tender-hearted to your circumstances? Am I tender-hearted to your frailty? Am I tender-hearted to your temptation? Or am I hard-hearted? Am I callous-hearted? Like, hey, you live with it. Rub some dirt on it. Love is tender-hearted to the struggles of the people around you, even if that struggles are their own fault. Aren't you thankful Jesus isn't like, deal with it. He's like, I dealt with it. That's how he deals with, his, with our sins and frailty. And so are we tenderhearted towards the frailties and the failures of others, even if it's their own fault? Love the way Jesus loved, as I loved you. Love one another. And then look at this one. Hate it, don't you? Forgiving one another. Okay, I will if they ask. I will if they make it up to me. I will after they've paid enough back. Oh, and then you read the rest and it's like, as God and Christ forgave you, even the people stabbing spears through his heart, forgive them, Father. They do not know what they're doing. It wasn't because we came begging. It's because he came pursuing. It wasn't because we earned it. It's because he paid it for us. And the way God forgave you in Christ is the way we're to forgive one another. Love because you aim at God's best in each other's life. You want what God wants for each other. And you are willing to pay whatever price to get there. Not because it's your duty, but because it's your joy. That's love. And so I want to drive you into relationships where you know each other so well and you love each other so deeply that you joyfully serve and care and support and sacrifice for each other. Not because you need anything in return, but because of what Jesus has, how Jesus has loved you is the way you want to love people. Second step, unity. Maintain unity. Relationships that are whole and flourishing with each other. Maintain unity. Relationships that are whole and flourishing with each other. All right. So when I was growing up, I had a quilt. Now I'm talking about the old school real quilts, not the kind that like ran through a sewing machine at some factory and popped out looking like a quilt. I'm talking about like grandma had patches of all these different clothes and all these different shirts and all these different spare fabric squares and cut them into squares, you know, different shape, uh, uh, different colors, different patterns, different textures, different things they came out of, put onto a base quilt. 
all these patches. And by the way, it was kind of ugly. By today's standards, for me, it was great. It was this comfy, comforting thing that I could wrap around. Uh, but by today, you know, it's the avocado green, right? There was a certain age where avocado green was thought of as a very wonderful color. It's not necessarily today, right? But I had this quilt and, and I wore it all the time or I drug it around all the time. And so the patches got torn and worn out. And some of the patches look like y'all's jeans, you know, the way you buy them. Like it's got this hole and there's just these strings that barely keep it together, right? That's the, it had this. And some of the patches, the only thing about the patch that stayed together was the sewn in part around the edges where it met the other patches. Unity is a lot like that quilt. All these different pieces that have no business beside each other, sewn together on purpose by God for the purposes of God. And some of those patches are frayed and some of those patches are worn out and some of those patches are rubbed off. And the only thing that keeps us together is that the purposes of God sewed us together. That's unity. Like that's, what, that's what he's driving at for us. It's not just a truce. It's not just we're not fighting at the moment. God desires that our lives be sewn in together and sewn in with people that we wouldn't be sewn in with if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sewn in together where only the gospel holds sometimes because nothing about the other stuff is keeping us side by side. And so is your marriage united, sewn in together because of the gospel? Is your Sunday school class united, sewn together because of the gospel? Are we as a church sewn together because of the gospel? And because of that, we're not tearing apart. Because of that, we will not be pulled separate again. That's unity. It's not we just don't fight. It's this active flourishing of community that comes because we've been sewn together around the gospel. Let's look at uh, a few texts as we think about it. It's not just these negatives, right? This fighting, this negotiated settlement, this cold war. Like some of your marriages turn into that. Mine does too sometimes, right? Where it's this cold war and we're not fighting, but man... We're simmering, and if just the next little thing happens, it's going to pop back out, right? That's not unity. So what is unity? I'm going to give you a couple of things about it before we get into a text. Unity is something that is given by the Holy Spirit in the gospel. Right? Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Every single believer and every single church is given unity by the Holy Spirit of God based on the gospel of God. Right? So maintain unity is the command don't create it the spirit created it it's a holy spirit given thing unity is built on truth it's built on the gospel and so we have this unity of faith the unity of the gospel we don't say let's let's have unity so there's some parts of the bible we need to cut out Let's be united together and say, look, there's some things we don't agree on and there's some things that the culture doesn't like. So let's just kind of cut those out around the edges so there can be unity. No, unity is a Holy Spirit given thing based on the gospel that he's given us, the truth that he's given us. And then it actually involves our affections. Like, it's okay, well, I got to have unity, so I'm not going to fight about this. No, it's this active love for one another. Right? And so that's unity. And then it's a witness to the world. You ever notice the world's not very unified? You know, country split right down the middle. At least that's what the news says. And they get all this money to keep it that way. And they get all this power to make us hate each other. Right? And that's, that's their job. That's the world. We divide. And if we can divide it the right way, we get power and we get money. 
That's not the gospel, though. The gospel binds us together to display to the world that there is a gospel unity possible in Jesus from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that cannot be accessed any other way. That's the kind of unity he's talking about. And so uh, let's look at Hebrews, uh, I mean, at Philippians 4, 2-3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. That may be the only one we get to on unity, but look at the qualities that are required for unity. Humility. Now, that's not like I'm going to beat myself up and I'm so terrible. Humility just says, I can be forgetful of me. Humility is self-forgetfulness, right? Because normally in life, in every situation, you're thinking about you. Are they looking at me? Did I say the right thing? Am I wearing the right thing? Why didn't they notice me? Why aren't they acknowledging me? Why don't they care about me? Like, that's normal life. It's called pride. You know what humility is? Let's forget about me and let's be about God and others. And if you're going to have flourishing relationships in your home and in, your, and in the church, then we're going to have to be self-forgetful and other, God's going to have to be the biggest part of the equation and other people are going to have to be the biggest part. And I can just be this little bitty part at the end. And I'm okay with that. That's humility. Humility, gentleness. You know a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. Maybe what your home needs more than anything, or maybe what your Sunday school class needs more than anything, or maybe what the church needs more than anything, or maybe what your uh, microgroup relationships need more than anything, is a gentle answer, even if a, a harsh word is what would be rightful. Maybe a harsh word is deserved, but a gentle word would t- turn the heat down. And a gentle word is what's needed. Gentleness, patience. I won't go into patience. It's important. Because we so desire for the unity of the Holy Spirit to be maintained. And we are willing to fight and die, not for our way, not for our decision, not for our color of carpet, not for our music, not for our thing that we want, not for our plan, not for it to go our way. We are willing to fight and die to ourselves so that the Holy Spirit's unity is maintained at all costs except for truth. Unity is flourishing relationships with each other. Do you have unity with other people? Do you have a relationship that is so exposed to another person that God has woven it together in the gospel and it holds because of the gospel? Relationships of growth and change are unified relationships. Not just not fighting relationships, but flourishing, helping relationships. Last step. Actively serving. Relationships where we practically serve each other and help each other grow. Relationships where we practically serve each other and help each other grow. See, relationships aren't lived out on paper, are they? It'd be great if I could just live my relationships on paper and do all the right things on paper. It'd be great if I could just do my relationships here for three hours. Because, I mean, I think this is, as far as the week goes, I think I probably do these three hours better than most. Three hours when it comes to, like, thinking about people and greeting people and remembering people and asking about people because I, I see them. It's about the only reason. But that's not where relationships are lived out, is it? Relationships are lived out in the real world 24 hours a day, seven days a week where things are messy and where things are nasty and where things aren't quite as clean and confined and controlled. That's relationships. They're practical. They're meant to be lived. They're meant to be Done. Let's look at a few of these. Hebrews 10 is kind of the defining passage on this. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. I want you to hear this, right? Let us consider. That means fix your mind on something. What should you fix your mind on? How do you stir the people around you up to love Jesus more? To love each other more. That's what. And so there should be people on your heart that you spend focused time daily or focused time throughout the week where you're like, how can I help Chris fall more in love with Jesus? Like that's a micro group. That's a DNA group. How can I help Chris love people more, more sacrificially? How can I drive him to a greater love? That's the text. How can I help Chris? How can I stir Chris up? How can I inflame the passions of Chris to serve with greater good works for the glory of Jesus? Is there anybody you think that way about? Is there anybody that you're so close to in your life that you're thinking, man, how can I increase their love for Jesus? Oh man, how can I just help them, encourage them, and and prod them and push them into their giftings and into their callings of their life. How can I, how can I be part of God's work to, to help people love him more and to help people serve him, to do the good works of Jesus in their everyday life? You gotta, you gotta be together for that, right? Don't neglect to meet together. Like we use that as a church first. Like you should come to church. See, don't neglect meeting together. No. He's writing this to people that were together daily in the temple and house to house. And they broke bread with each other and sincerity and, and simplicity of heart. Like he's talking to people that spent their lives together. And so he's not saying don't neglect coming to church. He's saying don't neglect to weave your lives with other people so that throughout the week on a regular basis you are in the lives of other people. That's how you're going to stir them up to love and good works. And you've got to exhort them. Do you know the day of Jesus is approaching? Do you know that Jesus will come back and everything's finished at that point? Man, that's great news. Except for the 90% of humanity that will spend eternity apart from him on that day. And there'll be no way to change it again from then. Right? Exhort one another. Days approaching. Exhort one another. Jesus is coming back to make everything right. Exhort one another. Jesus is coming to bring his reward. Exhort one another. Days approaching. And so are we actively helping people? Jesus is coming and it'll be all right. Are we actively helping people? Jesus is coming. Here's his word. Here's his grace. Here's his gospel. Let's keep going. Let's love. Let's serve. We got time to love and serve now. Paul was sharing in his devotion for college this morning. Ponder the brevity of life. Ponder the brevity of life. The day of Jesus is approaching. That's not fearful. That's this motivator to love and good works. Are we exhorting people to that? The last verse I'm going to mention just because we hate it. So I just have to say it. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Is there a brother or sister in Christ or two or three that you confess your sins to? Not because they're your priest and absolve you, but because there is a power of taking darkness and putting it into the light. There's a power to placing your sin before someone who is going to speak Jesus to your sin. Is there somebody you love enough, trust enough, and have woven your life together with enough to confess your sins to them? If not, this is a command of Scripture. This isn't a command of Chris. Therefore, 
Confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Let's close with a few practical things here. Men of broken relationships. Just think about that. Is there some relationship in your life that is broken? Maybe it's in your home. Is there some relationship in your life that is broken? Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's at work. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Will you be a peacemaker? Will you drive to mend what is broken? Will you confess? Will you humble yourself? Will you step forward and fall forward to your spouse? Will you step forward and fall forward to that other person at church? Will you step forward and fall forward to that coworker with a humility that allows your relationship to be restored? It's easy to move on, isn't it? I'd love to just be able to move on. It's just so easy to move on, and it's natural. Well, I'll just kind of spend as little time with that person as possible, or I'll kind of go this way during my break time, or I'll just kind of sit on this side of the church, or I'll just kind of move on to this Sunday school class, or this campus ministry. But man, there's something beautiful when God takes a broken relationship and pieces it back together. Second, pursue genuine relationships with two others. We've already talked about all these principles, right? That there's somebody that you love and you sacrifice for and you drive for the work of God in their life and they drive for the work of God in in your life and and you've knit together and you know each other's stories and the word of God pours into each other's lives for each other and Jesus has talked a lot about and Jesus is placed into sorrow and placed into sin and placed into stress and placed into failure in a very personal way because they know you and you know them. Pursue genuine relationships with two others. How do I get involved at Fletcher? Pursue genuine relationships with two others, and I will be thrilled. Now, Melody and Jill would also like you to watch the kids if you're safe for our kids. I'll be thrilled with two relationships, and then I will turn you over to them to be pursued for some other tasks that we could definitely use help on, right? And then the last one, force yourself to a new level of transparency. We all live with certain masks. We all have certain layers of walls built up through lifetimes. And you're probably not going to destroy all those today. But you know what you can do today? Destroy one of them. You can peel one mask off. You can peel one or tear one wall down on a step towards transparency, on a step towards I can entrust myself to Jesus. He knows the worst about me, loves me the most. So I can entrust myself to to true and faithful other believers a little bit more at a time. And I don't have to worry about the condemnation or shame that I may find there. I'm accepted by Jesus. And I just remind you on this point, one thing, Jesus chose 12 disciples. He chose them. He gave his life to them. The last supper, he picks up a morsel of bread as an act of honor. And he places that last morsel of bread into Judas's mouth. He chose 12, knowing one of them would stab him through the heart. And yet it was still worth it to Jesus to give his life to 12. And so I want to encourage you, it may not be safe. Yeah, you should try to be wise, pick faithful people, but it may not be safe. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Pursue relationships, pursue transparency. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name... Thank you for a gospel that while we were enemies, 
He died for us. Thank you for a gospel that, that, that says you've loved us perfectly first, not because we loved you. Thank you for a gospel that says go love that way. Go give your lives to other people that way. And we need your help, Father. Help us. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.